Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Transform Ed. This is a podcast run by teachers for teachers. We're aiming to explore the big questions facing educators today. I'm Chloe Tomlinson, I'm a primary school teacher in London and on today's episode we're going to be talking about knowledge and its role in education. being encouraged to adopt knowledge-rich curricula following the 2014 curriculum reforms, the discussion over what knowledge is taught in schools and why remains as controversial as ever. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Michael Young from the Institute of Education at UCL, who is well known in the world of education for arguing that we need a curriculum that is rich in knowledge and that the primary role of schools is to ensure that all children gain access to knowledge that they could not learn elsewhere. I'm also delighted to be joined by Mary Bowstead, Joint General Secretary of the National Education Union. Mary has been a compelling voice in the teaching community for the possible limitations of a knowledge-rich approach, including the need to ensure that the knowledge we do teach expands beyond the traditional canon, as well as the importance of ensuring our curriculum also equips young people with the 21st century skills they need to excel later in life. Thank you both for joining us this evening. Finally, I'm here with Paddy DeClaire. Hiya, good afternoon. Paddy is a uh, physics teacher and he is part of the Transform Ed team. So, in a way, um, questions around what we teach in schools inevitably lead to a discussion of why we should teach it and ultimately what we think schools are for. Mary, could you please start us off by explaining what do you think the purpose of schools should be? That's a big question. Um, Ultimately, I think schools are the... um, the means by which, the institutions by which we inculcate in the next generation what we as adults think they need in order to be successful successful citizens. So the schools now should be thinking about what does it take, what would it take, what knowledge and skills do children and young people need to be successful uh, citizens in the 21st century. And what we know is that what we knew about life is changing now more quickly than ever before. Um, the jobs that we do now are going to be radically transformed in the next 20 or 30 years. The impact of um, information technology, the impact of robotics, the impact of automation, it's going to fundamentally change the way that we live, the way that we work and the jobs that we do. So um, if you listen to Andrea Slyker from the OECD, he says that one of the f- what schools are very good at doing is teaching the knowledge that we were taught what we need to do much more thinking about now is what will we need what will our children and young people need in a world where there won't be a job for life and where uh, what we know as knowledge will be radically transformed by uh, new forces which we're barely getting to grips with okay thank you so that's a very forward-looking idea um, of what education is all about michael how does your idea of what schools are for compare with that well, I don't, I don't broadly disagree with what Mary says, believe it or not. Um, and uh, but I would just make a kind of emphasis that I do actually think that, in fact, uh, the whole question of knowledge got neglected for quite a time by the education community, and it was even sometimes seen as, in fact, elitist and exclusive. And I think that the one good thing out of the reforms since 2010 has been to bring back the idea that in fact the particular thing about schools is that 
the kids can actually acquire knowledge they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And I think that is a really strong thing. So I'd say that. Um, and uh, But um, I think that the thing that has not been recognised is that it's fine to put forward a... a, a, a curriculum based upon what I've sometimes called powerful knowledge but I don't think it's been enough consideration to realise the extent to which uh, that can still remain a curriculum for the few and not a curriculum for the many but it's a very different matter to say that you want a strong powerful knowledge based curriculum for all than to say it for the few because in a sense the few have always had a, a powerful knowledge based curriculum and it's nothing new what is new is the idea that it should be for all but what is unfortunately not new is the resources that would go to make that possible because that ha because that doesn't take into account the fact that knowledge is deeply unequally distributed in society unless we took that on we couldn't really think of a knowledge-based curriculum for all okay i think that's really interesting i think a useful concept there um is is your idea of powerful knowledge versus knowledge of the powerful <coughs> so i'm just wondering if you can unpick that a little bit more and yeah. explain that difference for our listeners well i don't it's one of these curious things that um, i'm not sure who actually first put it down on paper and so forth and I don't think that's terribly important really but um, I remember when I first gave a talk at the Institute about 2008 and uh, shortly after my book Bringing Knowledge Back In came out and uh, they said come talk about what you think about the future of the sociology of education not about the curriculum but the sociology of education and um, so I thought about it and I that was the point where I thought about this distinction between knowledge the powerful which focuses in a sense on what the curriculum does is to sustain inequalities in society uh, because it gives privileges to the few and not the many and powerful knowledge which says what and, and that's all very well as a critique but it doesn't leave you with very much direction to go uh, or for teachers but what we I thought we needed to focus on and I think sociologists I felt I wanted to be able to say something about was well if you do take knowledge seriously what is this knowledge that you want kids to know about and that's where the question about powerful knowledge came in the emphasis on subjects and in a sense and the importance of that being for all. Okay, so in, in a way, um, I, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're saying, but I, I think of it as knowledge of the powerful is this kind of top-down, this is the knowledge that yeah. belongs to the elite and um, that the elite sort of use to maintain their power, mm -hmm. um, but you also have powerful knowledge, which is just because it's useful, yeah. maybe maths, uh, maybe science. I mean, one way, sorry, just to repeat, in a sense that is that in fact the concept of powerful of knowledge of the powerful is not about the curric about knowledge at all it's about who has it yeah. it's about power okay whereas powerful knowledge is about so we need to look at the knowledge yeah and that's yeah. the difference yeah, yeah okay no, no, thank you and paddy as a teacher what what are your thoughts on that well, i suppose i mean yeah i really agree with uh, mary's view i think it's really important to look to the future like that and and also with michael about think, thinking about the wider sociological implications of what we teach at school and how we teach but i do think it's important to to remember the present now as well and and to remember uh, schools as a society within itself um you know i was in the classroom today i've been i've been teaching all day and I, I do think it's too often forgotten that it, school learning isn't about preparation for the future all the time or preparation for a society that's out there and that that what we teach and how we teach and how students learn has an implication there and then and that students do have to be happy and, and it's, it's not just about the future, it's something extrinsic to itself. Yeah. 
I totally agree. Sometimes we forget young young people aren't just future yeah. adults. It's not only about preparing them for their futures. Um, sort of linking into this, often today um, in discussions around education, there's a real emphasis on education and its role in in, in facilitating social mobility. Um, do you see schools as having a role in creating a fair and more equal society? I uh, think that that argument completely misunderstands what social mobility is about because if you look across if you look at different countries the countries where there is most social mobility are the countries where there is the most equal education system Absolutely. and that that's what you need to focus on you, if you focus on social mobility in a sense that means are you helping some people to go up and are you always going to be able to expand so that the people, everybody would, could just move up? Or are some people going to have to go down if others go up? Okay. So I think it's a misconceived concept, actually. I, I would actually write it out of the, <laughs> of the debate, frankly. And I'd focus on the question about how you actually promote equality okay. and social equality, which is much harder and tougher. Yeah, Mary, what are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. I think that social mobility is a completely redundant concept. Mm -hmm. The times when we have social mobility, the last time we really had it was in the 60s, yeah, and yeah. that was the growth of the welfare state. You needed mm -hmm. more doctors, you needed more nurses, you needed more teachers, you needed more social workers because the state was expanding, good jobs were expanding. At a time after nine years of austerity, when, um, you know, we have... Uh, we, we have, a, as a percentage of the jobs, we've got fewer good jobs with good contracts, mm -hmm. with uh, secure work, with work that gives people training development. What happens in that time, and the Sutton Trust will tell you this, is that those middle classes and the parents, why wouldn't they? They hold on with all their might to the good jobs. And, if, and you know, the... If, if you are poor, if you are disadvantaged, then you, you, the opportunity to move up the ladder is very much diminished. And, and what we require of poor children is that they be extraordinary. So we say to poor children, if you're absolutely extraordinary, you can yeah. escape the limitations of your poverty. We don't say that to middle-class children, but that's the hurdle we put in front of them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I agree with Michael. Social mobility is a redundant concept. What you want mm -hmm. is equality. But if you're going to have equality, it's not just a quality of access to knowledge, because that won't do it. It's <coughs> a quality of access to good food, to good housing, to good jobs, um, to, to a decent life. Yeah, brilliant. I think we all agree here. We need a more equal <laughs> society on the whole. Um, and yes, let's have an equal education system, but let's not burden it with that expectation of resolving those um, material inequalities in society. And don't say to teachers, as Nick Gibb did, that um, if you make that argument, you are the purveyor of the poverty of low expectations. Yeah. Don't diminish serious arguments around economics, around industrial policy and regional policy like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's now interesting to turn to our current curriculum um, and the rationale behind it. So this is, of course, the curriculum launched by Michael Gove and Nick Gibb in 2014. Um, and it is a more traditional curriculum than the one that preceded it. Um, the whole rationale, the whole justification of this is that if we give working class children access to the same knowledge as pupils from Eton, then they too could have the chance of, of climbing that social ladder, which we've already said is, is a, quite a problematic idea. Um, and that the way to do this is to redesign the curriculum um, to give all students access to the best that has been thought and said. Um, so Michael, your work on the importance of knowledge is often seen as having influenced Gove um, in his agenda as education secretary um, and in his pursuit of a more knowledge-rich curriculum. So to what extent do you think Gove's curriculum fits in with your ideas around knowledge um, and what a knowledge-rich curriculum should look like? 
I think that I think there are parallels. I should say that, in a sense, I, uh, that uh, I was shocked to find that I was that there was some agreement between me and a, sec a Conservative Secretary of State. <laughs> and uh, I had the embarrassing moment when a, uh, a friend and colleague of mine, Jeff Whitty, who you yes, probably I know, know uh, who was in this a seminar, and he then asked me whether I'd been Michael Gove's speechwriter. And I must it was one of my more embarrassing <laughs> moments, because I said, well, actually, I voted Labour all my life, and I'm still going to go on despite not always agreeing with them. So I was very sure. Um, but nevertheless, what I do recognise is that, in fact, what a government, what um, Gove had some interesting ideas, may, it has brought the whole curriculum knowledge debate into the arena. And I'm sad to say that, in fact, the, the Labour has always neglected that question Absolutely, and the whole comprehensive movement, and so forth. Unfortunately, even the best of it has done that. So I, I recognise that he's achieved something. What I think is a mistake is to imagine that, in fact, that uh, Matthew Arnold is the lesson for all of us, because, in fact, uh, although he was in many ways a kind of elitist egalitarian, was Matthew Arnold, I think. But in fact, he and he was a school inspector, which is where he had his ideas. He actually thought the best. That, thought and said was to go back to the ancient to the Greeks and uh, uh, and, and, and Latin and Rome and I think that there's no way in which you can prepare kids for the future of the 21st century on the basis of reading Aristotle and that was what I think that's the message you get from so I think that it's that was a thing that I didn't agree with okay, okay so you're supportive of the emphasis on knowledge but don't necessarily agree with which knowledge yeah. has, has and been I, I mean uh, also the point I made before is that it's just ridiculous to imagine that, in fact, if um, uh, you can give the same knowledge to a working-class kid mm -hmm. in East London that, you, that, in fact, is picked up by somebody at Eton when you've got the whole cultural support from family and the yeah. community and resources going yeah. with that. They're just, you know, it's just not. OK, Mary, um, you've been very critical of this focus on the best that is thought and said. Can you please outline your criticisms of this approach? Okay, so the first thing I want to say is that I was an English teacher. I absolutely taught the classics and Shakespeare and Dickens and George Eliot, and I loved doing that, but it's not enough. You also have to question how that canon was constructed, in whose interests and by whom. Because if you don't question that, what you end up with is the curriculum which is ethnocentric in the arts, male and white. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at... Um, who, if you just teach that curriculum, in whose interests are you teaching it and whose experiences are you hitting? Who, who, whose experiences are you making use of? If you always put um, certain groups of children as other in that curriculum that then can't relate to it as easily. And for me, the most important figure in my thinking about education was Vygotsky. And he said, his key concept was that uh, children um, develop before school spontaneous concepts things that they know without knowing how to run how to, what they, food they like to eat um, snow's cold and then they go to school and those spontaneous concepts are shaped by what he called um, non-spontaneous concepts which are which are the, 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 the curriculum and, and it's where children have to learn how to learn and, and in school we teach largely by metaphor but he also said that in order to make sense of this school knowledge you have to you have to harness what you know already there has to be a link between what you know already and your experiences which gives shape and form and volume to what you learn in school and so for some children you have to make sure 
for all children that they can see themselves in the curriculum and not just some children. Okay, I'm sensing, uh, Michael, that you might have some comments on that. So I just wonder if you could come back to Mary. Um, do you agree that it, what we teach children in school needs to be based upon their everyday experiences outside of it? I think that? I, I, th I think that yes. I mean, I don't think that uh, Mary and I disagree at all on what uh, uh, she said. I think the thing I would just stress is that in fact it's an example of the way in which in fact curriculum and pedagogy have got separated or yeah. not seen as a relationship. Because in a sense, uh, if you, I mean, I'm not an English person, but I, I gather that, and Mary would know more about this than I do. That if you go back to Shakespeare's time. The people who went to his plays were not no. Etonians. No. They were actually working class people yeah. from the community yeah. and so forth. So in a sense we've lost in a way yeah. uh, some of the texts, the way in which they've been used and we need to find a way of recovering this. And um, and so I, th I feel very strongly about I think that that's absolutely true. I mean it, it um, and um, so I, I would want to bring back the relationship between curriculum and pedagogy and then focus on those, you know, um, so that that would be the that would be the main the main point. But it does get used a bit in the sloganized terms, the dead white male thing, <laughs> which is not all that helpful. Uh, let's not, not use that phrase. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, Paddy, um, what are your thoughts? Oh my God, that that phrase, the best that has been thought and said, just makes me cringe so much. It reminds me, of, <laughs> reminds me of my dad forcing me to listen to Eric Clapton when I was thirteen, <laughs> talking about the best guitar solo ever. And I just, I just think that we should give sh like students and teachers as well a bit more agency, a bit more autonom autonomy. I think it's quite autocratic, technocratic, authoritarian to just say, this is what you need to learn. Um, and, and they've got it wrong as well. I mean, on key stage four science curriculum, students don't have to know about space. There's no requirement for it, which is outrageous. Not, I mean, and it's what they're so excited about. It's what gets them into school and lights them up. And I just have to shoehorn it in left, right and center as best as I can. Meanwhile, I'm forced to teach about specific heat capacity. These really, like to, to year nine, these like, I mean, it's, it's great later on and it's important, but it's, it's just not the right time or place for it. And I know that and I know who my students are and, and I, I can make that decision. I would just say a fantastic curriculum that uh, has been run in a primary school attached to my own is based on the IB and they go with learning statements rather than really prescriptive. Um, they they'd have stuff like there are hierarchies in society. And students can, can relate that to their own experience, whether it's their own community or their family. And it'll be the same for a family or community in Morocco or in China, that they'll be able to bring their own experience to it. Mm -hmm. And that curriculum is taught in private schools more than in comprehensive schools. And so I just think that, that we're really losing out there. We're missing something. Mm. Yeah, so I think in, in general, our curriculum can be seen to be overly prescriptive, um, regardless Absolutely. of what your ideal approach would be. Certainly when we at the moment does put it across in quite a narrow way. Um, this really links on to um, something I'd like us to talk about next, which is the favouring not only of particular types of cultural knowledge, say, for example, white, <coughs> male, elite culture, but also the curriculum having a very strong emphasis on so-called core or academic subjects over perhaps more creative um, or even vocational subjects. So I'm, I'm thinking sort of specifically of the EBAC introduced in 2011, which measures school performance based on how many pupils take GCSEs in maths, English, the sciences, a language and geography or history. Um, and I'm also thinking of in primary schools and the way that children are tested on spelling and grammar, on maths, on reading and writing. 
uh, and certainly from my experiences of teaching in primary schools how that leads to a huge amount of the curriculum being spent on maths and English and subjects like I mean even geography history but also of course music and PE becoming really very sidelined so we've talked a bit about the kind of prioritization of certain certain books a certain canon but I'm wondering perhaps Michael if we start with you how do you feel about this prioritization of academic knowledge does this fit with your idea of which knowledge is powerful which knowledge matters most Um, and is this sidelining of subjects like art and music justified I mean I think again it's one of these things that uh, the back range is not itself a problem. What's a problem is the way in which the uh, the assessment system, the way in which schools are judged and ranked, mean that in fact certain things are given m- much more emphasis than others. So that in fact you find that I mean, if you if you if you do if you do an academic curriculum at a Eton, sorry, say for a moment, most of the kids will do ten or twelve subjects. If you do it, if you do it uh, in in another school where they haven't got the resources, haven't got the teachers, oppressed by the pressures for the, you know, for the ranking and so forth, they will do much fewer. So it's a kind of narrowing. I mean, I would like to see more schools offering the the IB, which I think is in fact the, the best curriculum that's going currently at the moment. Uh, and uh, and I also think that in fact we in England have have been much too specialised in our curriculum. I mean, you know, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm a chemistry teacher by trade originally, and um, I spent the last two years of my schooling doing nothing else but physics, maths, and chemistry. Now, that's an appalling education. I, and, you know, it's supposed to be in a posh school, elite school, but it was an appalling education. So, you know, I think we need to tackle that. Uh, I would not, before... And if it's just a word about the vocational, as you mentioned it, uh, in the thing, two things to say. One is that um, the problem with vocational in in England is that, in fact, is that it's seen as something for people who can't do the academic. And uh, that, in fact, therefore, if you go on a vocational course, you don't actually get a continuation of your general education. Whereas if you do the vocational course in Germany, you find you are doing civics and things um, properly as part of, in fact, an apprenticeship. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's always a more complex thing than it's focused on. But anyway, I just yeah. thought it was worth mentioning that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. But I wouldn't really start in a in the time. I mean, Mary mentioned about the change in occupations and so forth early on. I, I mean, I'm absolutely... I mean... I, I wouldn't have kids doing vocational courses before 16 at no, all. No, no. Not Mary. at all. Because so, the vocations won't be there by the time yeah. they're 18 or 19. So I think all children should have a broad and balanced curriculum, and that's mm-hmm. more than the EBAC. I think that all children and young people should have the opportunity to learn about their bodies, to do mm-hmm. enough physical oh, yeah. education, mm-hmm. to make. Making things is a primary act of mind. We should be doing design technology. We should be doing dance, music, drama, the arts. You can be quite sure that that's happening in the independent schools. You can be sure also that in independent schools there is a rigorous inculcation mm-hmm. of skills and the explicit incorporation of skills in uh, in in teaching um, and we can see that in fact what's happening now is that you know design and technology is 32 percent drop in entry in I just got these figures before performing and expressive arts 26 percent drop um, drama 14 percent drop um, 
you know, music, 28, 22% drop. So we can see that um, now that's part of that drop is down to uh, the funding crisis in schools. But part of it is also down to the narrowing of subjects. But I would say something else as well. Um, and this is around um, the other experience which is happening in schools, which, which is virtually unquestioned now, which is in English schools now. Um, it is virtually unquestioned that, particularly in secondary, but increasingly in primary, children will be setted. They'll put into sets. And the question of what access do they get to the curriculum? If you, we know if you're in a lower set, you're more likely to be getting a teacher unqualified in that subject. You're more likely to get a restricted curriculum. And we know that if you're black, you are more likely to be put in a lower set than you should be due to prior attainment. In maths, if you're a girl, you're more likely to be in a lower set than you should get from prior attainment. In English, if you're a boy, you're more likely to be in a lower set. So, so the so the the prejudices of society are not schools are not immune from those. And when we talk about a knowledge-rich curriculum, we really have to think about who's getting the knowledge and how rich it is. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that the fact that you've both linked that to wider practices in assessment, in streaming and in funding um, shows how sort of deeply embedded these problems are in our current education yeah. system and also how, I mean, I find particularly with assessment, um, the, you know, Nick Gibb says that he wants to have a broad curriculum, but the reality is, and it is particularly so if you're teaching in a school in a, in a disadvantaged area, that schools are put under so much pressure to jump through these hoops that if what you're going to be tested on is English and maths, that is what, that's where the money's going to go, that's where the teaching time is going to go. Um, you, you can't say to teachers and school leaders, uh, we are going to assess how successful you are on these metrics, on these exams. We are going to tell the rest of the world how successful you've been through league tables. On the basis of this, you will get an inspection. And if you don't get these, you're much likely to be given a negative inspection grade. And then, oh, by the way, ignore all that and teach a broad and balanced curriculum. It's, it's incoherent. Well, I, I think they have done that, though, haven't they? Hasn't Amanda <laughs> Spielman said just that? She, I mean, we, we've been driven into the ground for years and years and years now about assessment results. And she's just recently turned around and said, oh my goodness, you're focusing far too much on assessment. She can't believe it. It's outrageous. And now she's turned around and said, oh, okay, now now we're really going to emphasise curriculum. And so now that's fallen down on top of me. I'm head of Key Stage 3 curriculum at my school. And start of the year, my uh, head of the department says, right, we need to revamp our curriculum. And it's just another thing on top of something else I, when you finally got into grips. And, and believe that and believe virtually anything because it's not that there won't be data. It's just that they won't look at in-school data. So the external data will become even more important. And the idea that generalist offset teams without any subject-based expertise will be able to go in and assess in your classroom the intent and the impact of your curriculum unless they're a physics teacher is just ridiculous so you know let's wait and see what happens there <laughs> yeah um we've touched on it briefly already but before we move on i just want us to quickly revisit this question of knowledge and skills um it's quite often presented as a choice between the two um and I, I wondered, Mary, what you think of that binary. Is it a helpful way to frame questions about what and how we teach? Well, you need both. I mean, what do we know from the OEC about high-performing countries? We know that they have rigour, focus and coherence in the curriculum. We know that they teach from subject disciplines, 
but they aim at interdisciplinary learning. So the subject disciplines are there, but where they focus their project work, their topic work is around how do we, um, how do we, what's the what's the boundaries of knowledge between these subject disciplines, and how do we work with them together to do to achieve to shape knowledge for our own ends. And um, we know that they enable pupils to sit to look at problems through multiple lenses. So in those systems there's real world problems with real context where children have to bring what they know from the subject disciplines but bring them together in order to solve real problems. The problem we have in the UK is that though our teachers say we want to teach through inquiry, we now come top of the OECD table for rote memorization. That's the problem. And what do we know about rote memorization? It's fine for lower order learning. It's not fine for elaboration strategies which allow you to think creatively and to and to do what the essence of thought is, which is to make connection. And and that's where we've got. We've got there through uh, the multiplicity of timed linear courses with timed linear exams. Uh, we've got there through the courses being too full of subject content without enough opportunity for children to explore and for teachers to explore and for teachers to be given agency and to make choices and we've got there through the pressures of accountability and that's the major problem we've got we come top when it comes to rote learning yeah that's a really um, interesting way of, of thinking about it um michael what are your thoughts perhaps you know d does the teaching of knowledge I, need I, to come at the expense of teaching skills which certainly as mary said under our current system it seems to be that there is such a need to for, for pupils to acquire the knowledge to pass those exams that we're not left with much room for skills is that is that um sort of choice necessary uh and also, are there any skills that you do think need to be taught explicitly? I think, I think it originates from uh, a, uh, a kind of misunderstanding of, or a, a false understanding of, of skills. Yeah. That, in fact, skills are about doing particular things. And on the whole, um, which people do need to learn. Um, but, uh, but they tend to be associated with, with work and with things. And I think those are just the kind of things that schools are not particularly good at because that's not where they are. I mean, if you take any subject on the curriculum, not just the sciences and not just design technology, for, for instance, if you take any subject, if you take even history, then you actually have to develop a lot of skills to, to in fact, learn history. You have to be, learn about how to deal with archives, all kinds of things like that. So I, I, I think that it's an, a kind, almost a false, a false debate. Um, and um, I, what I would do, I think, if I if I had a choice, is to is to make the the the, the form of the knowledge based curriculum take up about two thirds or something of the week, and give schools the individual choice to work out the other things that kids need to know about. That's going to relate to specific things in their area, their community and things like that, which will involve developing confidence and reliance and resilience and all these things. I'd make sure that they have that for that bit of the, 
the curriculum and that I think one could do it but I wouldn't go with that I, I think you have to teach it through the subject I think you have to think about the, the, the knowledge content you need in the subject and then what skills you do to develop that and you have to articulate that and the reason I think skills are so important is that they 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 allow, allow you to successfully repeat an, a, a repeatable process they are and and they allow you to transfer the knowledge you've gained in one area into another and to use it for your own end so uh, I think what we do in the UK system at the moment is we we, we we think that skills are implicit in the curriculum. And the other thing I think is that children and young people need to know. They need to be able to name the skills they've got. Because if they don't know they've got them... Mm -hmm. So, for example, when I was teaching, I was really clear that, that we focused on spoken standard English and the, the skill of giving a speech, rhetoric, speaking oh, yeah. clearly, speaking no, no, up. No, no, no. That's the skill which is inculcated hugely in public schools. Mm. My worry mm. is not that we're not doing the knowledge. My <coughs> worry is that we're not doing the skills and you can be sure that the public schools are doing the skills. Yeah, and that, that mm -hmm. really goes against the kind of rhetoric that you sometimes see um, in whether it's the education community on Twitter uh, or in, in speeches where education around skills is sort of somehow seen as less rigorous um, and a bit of a kind of soft soft option um, and yeah certainly based on my own experience whether it's knowing how to tackle a, a complicated word problem in maths or knowing how to write for an audience um, in in my own experience as a primary school teacher the skills actually often are really the the difficult bit for the for the children we're working with um, to grasp. Okay, I want um, us to move on now to um, the question of teacher authority. Um, so this doesn't necessarily that overtly link into the knowledge discussion we've been having, but I think it's really interesting to observe that schools like Michaela or Bedford Free School, which are leading the way and emphasising the importance of knowledge um, on the curriculum, have also often advocated very teacher-led pedagogies and, and sometimes quite punitive behaviour management systems. Um, so, Michael, I wondered if you could maybe start us off. Do, is there any necessary relationship between these direct instruction approaches alongside quite strict behaviour management systems um, and a knowledge-rich curriculum? I think the... Uh, I haven't actually visited Michaela, but um, I have seen the... Um, the framing of lessons and what happens, and that in fact a, a the uh, teachers are given these pre pre-designed uh, lesson plans, and the kids are put in front of them, and they're also given uh, rulers. And they go down one after the other. They go through the different points of this, and in a sense, they've actually turned it into a kind of machine. Mm. I, I, I think, and also the. Um, uh, I mean, I've, uh, I've not seen any lesson there, but I've seen a similar school up in in Bradford, uh, and um, the the discipline is actually quite scary. I mean, I would not want my daughter or son to go to one of those schools I really wouldn't because in fact and I think that because in a sense the discipline has been focused on the behavior so that there's silence in the corridors mm. um, there's special things going on in the meals there's very little freedom you don't get a sense of a of a invigorated school a community there at all so I, 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 I think that but what they are probably able to do through uh, 
repetition, memorization, regurgitation is to produce good results. I, don't, I haven't seen any figures for the results mm. of them. But no, I think they are a very unfortunate model. I don't really want to comment on that. I want to say that I've been to School 21 in Stratford in East London, and no. that's a very different model. Yeah, really, really interesting. I spent the day there. I mean, they were doing the World War. They built a World, world War trench. The cross-curricular thematic work, very interesting. Yeah, sorry. Can, um, for our listeners, School 21 is a school that is uh, quite well known for its project-based yeah. learning yeah. approach and having um, a sort of more progressive mm. approach to education. Mm. Um, so, mm. sorry. Just well, I just loved it there. I just yeah. loved it there. And um, what um, uh, the head teacher, I've forgotten his name now, Peter... Um, that's right. You weren't there. And, and what he said was, what he said when, to all the, I, I want you to do beautiful work. I want you to do the best work that you can. And a huge emphasis on oracy, on um, the skills of uh, getting to know one another, getting to work well together, accepting difference, the ability to speak well, the ability to make, the ability to question, the ability to use a whole range of um, uh, equipment and, uh, and, and to produce and, and really. There are other subject disciplines there, but it's absolutely at the cutting edge of the subject disciplines to make, to constantly think about how would you use these things, um, and and what skills are you developing? Okay, Paddy, what are your thoughts on uh, behaviour policies in schools? I, I just, well, first off, I mean, very much what Michael saying, it just doesn't sit well with me. It's just sad to think of students walking around in silence, being yeah. scared to speak to each other. It just, it, it, my my whole soul rails against it, and I, I just think it's wrong, but. On top of that, I mean, I, I hear about a lot of different schools in, in my locality and further afield through my union, f- through talking to other teachers. And it just seems in, the, in this climate, in this atmosphere of, oh, oh my God, almost oppression, you know, where mm. schools have to get the grades. I think it's a quick fix a lot of the time. I mean, it's, it's much more difficult to do, you know, go back to the drawing board and think like what School 21 apparently have done and, and really built up from the bottom. It's, it's much easier to say, right, no one's talking. You're it, mm. And... I, I just think it's it's a, a larger cost that's that's much less tangible. Yeah, I I totally agree. And Can I say one yeah? additional thing? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd agree with this, Mary, but um, um, I've been working with a small group of teachers, two of whom are physics teachers mm. from the School 21. Mm. And what they tell me is that, in fact, they have found themselves, f- the school has found itself having to need to bring back a component of a Mm. more formal knowledge Mm. curriculum than they started with. Mm. That they Mm. couldn't, in fact, rely on inquiry and projects and things like that, which is where they started. And now, so in a sense, they're trying to find a middle way rather than say... You have to do both. I have Mm. nothing, absolutely nothing against didactic teaching. No, no. I used to spend quite a lot of my time... I know about blank verse, you don't, and I'm Mm. going to tell you about it. But if that's where you leave it then yeah. it never becomes their knowledge you have to give mm-hmm. when you when you when you impart knowledge you have to give children and young people the opportunity to make it their own and in order to do that they've got to work with it yeah i i yeah i totally agree and for me uh, in primary um it's always depended what I'm teaching. Yeah. I might have one maths lesson which is on using the column method and a more direct instruction approach is going to be more appropriate. I might have another one where I really want the emphasis to be on how to untangle quite complicated problem-solving yeah. situations um, and actually then a, an inquiry-based uh, approach is going to mean that the, the children get a lot more out of it. Well, it's just teaching though, isn't it? You know, scaffolding a question yes. and you don't just... Te- if, if a student asks you a question and you know that deep down they can figure it out, yeah. 
you don't just tell them the answer. You say, well, why do you think that? And what would it be like in this situation? It's just it's just good teaching to have it come mm. from the student rather than just give it to them. And we have to give teachers back the confidence that they have those professional mm-hmm. skills, yeah. mm-hmm. that they know their children well, that they've got a range of repertoires available to them. They have to give them that Social constructivism, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, Final question. Uh, so you both argued, uh, though, for different reasons, that the current curriculum is not sufficiently modern. Um, with the demands of the 21st century in mind, can we end today's podcast with one idea you could think of that could be implemented immediately uh, in order to transform education? Don't mind who wants to marry. Can you? Well, I, I think what we have... Uh, so we're now at the case where within five years, a third of teachers have left. Oh within 10 years, nearly half teachers have left the profession. They leave because they say that they have to work. You know, we work, we know that teachers work more unpaid over overtime than any other profession, and we know that teachers teach about the average hours of, of the OECD, about twenty one and a half hours, but their time spent out of the classroom is double that mm. of other high performing OECD countries. Much of that is bureaucracy around proving that you are doing what you're doing, yeah. teaching learning. The way we have to do that is through, and they, and teachers do that. They tell us because of. Uh, accountability, um, out of school accountability and in school accountability. Uh, the thing I would do to transform our education system fit for the 21st century is to get rid of Ofsted. Fantastic. <laughs> sure, lots no, of us could get behind that. I would just put it. I would put it in a, in a slightly different way, but I don't disagree at all. Um, I think that we need a radical rethink about how schools are made accountable. Yes. That in fact they need to be accountable. Yeah, they do. And uh, but now we do it through the outcomes and the performance, yeah. and that actually destroys the possibility of yeah. the learning. Yeah. And we have to find a different way. I mean, and uh, whether it's done partly through a reformed Ofsted or partly through a reformed assessment system, yeah. combination of those things. But it it is possible. I think there's no question about it. And I think it's a lot to do with things like funding class size and things like that mm. that in fact teachers are under less pressure yeah. because um mm. you know you i i remember talking to a somebody who now teaches at bath spa university who's maths teacher somewhere in kent and she said i used to go into this school i don't know whether i'm and kent you know, have grammar schools so mm. uh i go into the school and I used to say, I'm not going to allow you to have see any assessment, any exam questions or anything. We're going to work on the maths. Because yeah. you'll pass anyway. Yeah. And that's the way to do it. But it wasn't, she wasn't accountable. Mm. Yeah, brilliant. Right, that's all we've got time for. Michael and Mary, thank you so much for joining us. It's thank been you. a brilliant discussion. This was Transform Ed. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do tweet us and share any questions or suggestions you have for upcoming shows. Thank you very much. Thank you. Is there any way in which I can do it without being a Twitterer? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, we'll definitely email it to both of you as soon as we've got it. We can probably even send you a...